Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on the show today is my dear friend, Kimberly Snyder. Kimberly is a meditation teacher, nutritionist, host of the Feel Good podcast, and three-time New York Times best-selling author. She has penned seven books, including Radical Beauty, which she co-authored with Deepak Chopra. Her newest creative work, You Are More Than You Think You Are, Practical Enlightenment for Everyday Life, will be released on January 25th, 2022. This new book draws inspiration from the teachings of the great guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, who brought yoga to the West in the early 20th century. In a certain way, this book is a modernization of many of the ideas and techniques associated with Kriya Yoga, the method championed by Yogananda as a means to unlock your true self. In our conversation, we talk about the true self and how the world often makes us feel not enough and how meditation and inner spiritual work can assuage these ill-conceived feelings of inadequacy. We discuss yoga in all its myriad forms, from the predominantly physical modern iteration to the spiritual dimensions of Kriya and Raja Yoga. We discuss Hinduism and other Eastern traditions. We excavate the nature of fear and how to tame it, and we discuss the ego, its components, and how it leads us away from our true self. Kimberly's new book is really a simple guide to living a good life, full of accessible techniques to bring us into alignment with who we really want to be. And if you're interested in diving deeper, you can also check out Kimberly's commune course, Beauty Inside Out, for free with a 14-day trial of commune. Just go to onecommune.com trial where you can find Kimberly's course and over a hundred other courses dedicated to well-being, health, personal growth, and social impact. I'm very good friends with Kimberly, which I'm sure you will intuit 
by the relaxed nature of our interaction. And that really allows us to get into some deep material. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, I present to you, Kimberly Snyder. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Um, yeah, I'm glad that we uh, we ate the THC gummies before the conversation. Just given where our conversations normally go, we will, I'm sure, delve into the cosmic terrain. Yeah, well, we got our tea here today. We we carved out the schedule. I feel like we rescheduled this podcast like eight times. So that, we made it. We're at is, the table. <laughs> that is indicative of our friendship. We feel yeah. comfortable enough with each other saying like, we're going to get this done. We're going to get it done. And, and here we are. And <laughs> just disclaimer, we don't actually need the pot gummies or the ibogaine or to suck some sort of psychoactive <laughs> out of the anus of a frog to have like really dynamic conversations. So that's right. You know, that's right. That's, don't a, get the wrong idea. that's an add on. But for now, we just, you know, we're just going to flow along. No externals. Just connection. That's right. I love that you trust the connection because, of, of course, we do, as a podcast host yourself, you know, that we do think about these things in advance and we try to do our research and do some pre-production because we value our listenership. They, they look to us, you know, for some degree of organization in our life. <laughs> so I texted you yesterday, like, what do you want to talk about? You say, we'll just go with the flop. <laughs> You're like, uh, should we call all the questions or should we just flow and for always yeah, flow? Trust. Yes. That being said, I feel like this is a preamble of caveats. That being said, uh, I have read uh, your book, most of it. Um, and your book actually precipitated me to read the autobiography of a yogi. Oh, really? You had never read it before? I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I've never read it before. Wow. And... I have been going through catharsis after catharsis. Wow. First of all, just as a writer, wow. uh, it is just a masterful work of prose. Oh. Or, I mean, it's really poetry as prose. I yes. Mean, just the imagery. I mean, this. Uh, there's this chapter where he talks about, he recounts the, um, the meeting that he had with Rabindranath Tagore, who yes. was this poet. And he describes Tagore in these terms. And all I could do was read it and actually be jealous of how good <laughs> the prose was. Well, you can <laughs> tell he's he's pulling from somewhere else. Like yeah. his creativity in English, of course, was not his first language. So for me, um, and I described this in the beginning of the book, when I was backpacking for three years, it's another story, but I thought yeah. it was going to be a few weeks, ended up being three years around the world very cheaply living out of my car in Africa. But one of the places that really blew me away, of course, was India. And I was in Rishikesh in one of those um, spiritual bookstores with like hundreds of books. And I actually have the book with me. I carry it around. It's this little blue leaflet booklet, like very plain cover. And it was the universality of yoga. And it was sitting on a shelf. And I remember just feeling drawn to it. And when I started reading it was by Yogananda. I started reading his words. I felt like this 
like this fire, like this energy come up. And I had never felt anything like that before. And I never heard of all this stuff he was talking about, like oneness and um, the energy matrix underlying all things and all these concepts and real inner peace. So that was my introduction. And from that day, um, I've been following his teachings and reading everything over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I, on some level, I might categorize that book as sort of a desert island book. Like if it's the only book you yes. ever read, that's sufficient. It's adequate for that. It is, uh, um, there are sections uh, about the nature of miracles. Yes. That are both, that, that he manages to alloy the spiritual and the scientific in a way that is so graceful. Um, and that, at once appeals to your mind and your intellect, and also you also lands in your heart. That's right. Center. It's, so, and what um, what really draws me to Yogananda too is the practicality of the teachings. So mm. I'm rereading now the his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, mm. which is like this long, <laughs> yeah. but each verse he goes into like all these amazing um, like chapters and chapters of the depth of each stanza. So it's like you could read the Gita in a day or you could read Yogananda's commentary and really understand the, you know, the allegory and the representation of, you know, the grandfather of Arjuna. It's the battle of, you know, Arjuna, uh, where Arjuna gets to choose between the greatest army in the world and the council of Krishna, who chooses Krishna, which is the voice of the true self. Right. So I'm rereading it now and I read it, I think, 10 years ago. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like we, we do progress, like this meditation stuff works because now I understand it on the level and I still have a lot more understanding to do, but the depth I understand it now is like, you know, I think I kind of blew through it the first time. Yeah. And this is actually the amazing thing about creative works is that one person may be the author of the creative work, but when it's, it's released into the creative universe, it becomes a billion creative works yes. because everyone that touches that work is bringing their own intellect and personal experience to the work. Yes. It's funny, on a more uh, layman's level, I introduced <laughs> my kids to Star Wars just this past weekend. We love weekend. Star Wars too, yes. And so they had never seen Star Wars. Oh. And and so we we started with episode four, which is actually episode one, you know, the, yes. the first original Star Wars that was produced and released in 1977. Mm. And of course, I had not seen it in decades. And now I'm, of course, looking into it and being like, oh, that's Hinduism. And, yes. you know, that's, a, you know, some sort of reference to um, the the infinite mind of source or infinite mind of God. And, you know, I'm looking yes. at it from a whole different place because I'm bringing my more evolved self to the work. <laughs> the and layers so, and layers, it's yeah, true. And so I think, you know, the way that you're bringing yourself to the work of Yogananda now is uh, is somewhat similar, I suppose. Um, so you wrote this book, which I'm excited about. And, and it's very funny because this book is how I know you. Yes. And the world at large knows you for your great insights on nutrition and food and, and other parts, other dimensions yes. of yourself that have been public. But I know you really as from a a more deep-rooted spiritual and philosophical way. So when I was reading the book, I was like, 
this is the Kim I know. Um, and this idea that you are more than you think you are is a very sort of a very kind and accessible way to say that you can self-actualize, that you can self-realize, that you are infinite source. But some, when you say it that way, it can be a little bit like yeah. scary or off-putting. So can you excavate, you know, some of the reason why you wrote the book and, and what you're getting at? Yes. So, um, so I'll say it's, it's true, Jeff, like this is really like my full playbook. These are the teachings that have helped me the most. Um, and I'm so excited to be offering it now for the first time. So when I started, as I mentioned, I was backpacking for a couple of years and I look back on that period and I think I was, you know, I was seeking, I didn't know what I was seeking at the time, but I was very uncomfortable in my body and myself. I was, hmm. you know, I'm half Asian. I grew up in a, in a Caucasian place. I never really felt like I fit in. Um, I had a lot of struggles with trying to be skinnier, um, trying to look better. I had acne, a lot of anxiety, a lot of insomnia. Everything was an external reference point. It was like what people thought of me. Yeah. And then I was, um, you know, obsessed with having perfect grades. I was obsessed with achievement. So by the time I graduated from, from Georgetown, I just felt like, uh, like I don't know what I want to do with my life. All these, I felt all this angst. Um, I thought I was going to be a doctor at one point. I went into college with a partial science and math scholarship, interned in the hospital and realized that was not my path. So anyways, I, I worked for a year and then I saved up that money to go backpacking. And as I mentioned, it was India that really um, blew me away. I, I started in Asia. I went the normal route of Southeast Asia. But when I went to India, I was, I think, you know, they say people either love India or they're repelled by it. For me, the second I got there, I was just drawn in. I love the chaos and the smells and the colors. Mm. And it was that experience actually finding Yogananda's book in Rishikesh that really um, opened me up to yoga and meditation for the first time. So I hadn't tried it in America or in the West, I didn't really know what it was. And it, it was from that, um, it was yogic science really from the source of union. So it was Yogananda who I was learning it from. It wasn't so much physical movement. It was about pratyahara, withdrawing the senses, pulling everything in and connecting inside. Um, so I started to practice his teachings pretty, you know, pretty soon after I read that book and I was starting to go deeper and deeper. The journey continues, the backpacking journey. And then I land in New York City. Um, because my family's from the East Coast and I just, you know, I landed there and I was completely broke, Jeff. I was, you know, I had maybe a little bit of money. I was like subletting this place and I would sit on the edge of my Murphy bed. I remember at the time and I was doing the teachings and the practices that Yogananda was teaching me. And, you know, my parents were like, you know, you decided to go backpacking. Like we paid for your college. It was a little bit of tough love and I didn't really want to ask them for money anyways. But I remember feeling like, you know, I didn't really know the direction of my life, but I was starting to feel, um, I was, you know, meditation is meant to be experiential. So I was feeling things happening. And so what I was doing, I started to go back and teach yoga. And then I went back to nutrition school and I was, um, I started a free blog 
And here's the crazy part. I didn't know anything about, you know, marketing or SEO. And the only people I told my blog to was the yoga students. And it started to spread throughout New York City organically. And then my first celebrity found me. To this day, I don't even own a TV. So I certainly was not trying to get into that world. But she found me and I got in the film set. And then I started working with all these other actors and celebrities. So the next five years of my life, I would say, was kind of, you know, working with them to feel their best. And it wasn't just the food, Jeff. It was you know, processing emotional and mental health and meditation and all of that. Um, the reason I and then I started getting on TV shows regularly, like Good Morning America and all this stuff. So I was in this like flow and I wasn't trying. I mean, I was trying, I was putting effort, but I wasn't pushing. And here's the funny part of the story. The first book deal came and it was from HarperCollins, who was my first publisher six books ago. And Sarah was my first editor. And I had a manuscript called Catching the Fire. And it was a lot of these teachings and it was a travel memoir. And she looked at my blog and she's like, oh, she goes, the food stuff and the recipe stuff is really taking off. So why don't we do a food book first yeah. and then we'll do this mm -hmm. book second? Well, that first book was exactly 10 years ago to this year, The Beauty Detox Solution, wow. which did really well. So like a million copies. So then the second book was a food book. But the third book, Jeff, start going back. It was called Beauty Detox Powers about chakras. The fourth book I wrote with Deepak Chopra, um, which was Ayurveda and spirituality. And then the fifth book was Mind Body Connection. And then this book, um, you know, just came through when I was 34 weeks pregnant. I was trying to slow down, but this just, Yogananda was like, it's time. These need to be out here. And I just, I said, okay, I just surrendered. And I think I signed my book deal three days before I gave birth. Oh my God. <laughs> So you composed this book as a new mother. So not only as a new mother, I waited 60 days. I went past that Ayurvedic 40 day period. I wrote it and it just, everything about this book was so different than the other ones, Jeff. It just flowed. Um, I was a new mom, but this is also during COVID. So my older son wasn't in preschool. Um, so I was like with them all the time. I'm like, how did I write this book? I was also running my company and I have, I have a podcast too. I don't know. It just kind of you were as came through. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly don't know. Yeah. Nap times, late night. Yeah, Wayne Dyer, who we both admire greatly, you know, talks about that uh, that flow of writing as not actually writing the words themselves, but as writing that you become yes. the conduit for the information and. Um, for those of yes. people who have had that direct experience of creativity where you know you sense yourself just as the conduit just getting it, out of the way it is a it is a magical way of experiencing life so i don't feel like i mean this is the first book i can honestly say from my heart i do not feel like this is my book hmm. i feel like it wants to be here like in modern life showing these teachings from modern life and I feel like I'm in service to the book um I also feel like the precursor to writing this book was I think around when we met actually like four years ago 
when I went through my rock bottom, one right. of my rock bottoms, because I've been meditating now for over 12 years. So you can kind of like go in and out when, you know, life's happy and good. And sometimes you make time for it, but sometimes there's a party or a dinner or whatever. You kind yeah. of push it off. But when you are going through rock bottom, that is when you need practices. That's when you need the teachings to just take a breath to even survive. And so my rock bottom was, you know, four years ago, my, um, my older son wasn't yet one. And then I lost my mom really suddenly. We found out she had cancer on Valentine's Day and then March 29th, she passed. So it was, you know, six weeks. And then it was this epiphany. I woke up and I was like, this is not, this is not what I want my life to be. And I loved my prior partner. He was, he is a great guy, but it wasn't this emotional closeness. It wasn't the relationship I wanted. So then I moved out with my older son, Emerson. So it was this period where I was a new mom. I lost my mom and I became a single mom. And that is when I went really deep back into the practices and Yogananda. And that's when I started rereading all the, the texts, the Mahabharata and the Upanishads, as well as the New Testament of the Bible and Rumi and all these really ancient texts. Um, and so I feel like this book is an extension of that period where I think, you know, so much today, Jeff, is about like the new trends, the new biohacking stuff, like the new studies, all that new stuff I think is really can be useful and fun. But I think there's so much value in the old. Yes. And this book, like the ancient, the really old, you look at these teachings and most people aren't going to dust off the Bhagavad Gita and read like thousands of pages. So I really felt like, oh my gosh, like spiritual equality, people should have access to this. And it should be presented in a way that's practical. So you'll see like the book is like very practical ways of incorporating the teachings. Yeah, and it's very open the way Yogananda was to people of myriad traditions. Yes. So the Self-Realization Fellowship, even if you go there, Lake Shrine here in Los Angeles, there are areas dedicated to different religions. Yes. And so Yogananda himself was really saw himself as a bridge between the East and the tradition of Eastern religions and thought and the West. And in fact, in the autobiography of a yogi, he's often quoting Christ and the apostles um, as part of oh, the overarching yes. message. And I think, so I, I think that you know, in the West, in the modern West, yoga is highly concomitant with with postures or with hatha yoga, with asana. Yes. And so we see, you know, on every street corner, <laughs> a, a yoga studio and, you know, a young, lithe woman in Lululemon popping into a handstand on a whim, you know. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I have great envy for that. I would certainly love to be popping into handstands on a whim. Um, but that really belies the true meaning and the broad meaning of yoga, certainly as Yogananda was expressing it. In fact, postures and, and vinyasa really is a relatively recent um, development in, you know, in the 1920s even, um, when it really became more a part of the practice. But what Yogananda seems to be addressing is really that old timey yoga, and he calls it Kriya Yoga, but it even has roots even back farther than that, Raja Yoga from yes. the Sutras of Patanjali. So can you spend a little time, you know, delineating between the various methods of yoga and how 
the teachings of Yogananda or Kriya Yoga specifically address this idea of connection and union. Yes. Thank you, Jeff. So <clears throat> you're right. I think one of the most powerful things that Yogananda did when he came here to the West was he put um, Jesus Christ on the altar with Krishna. And he was saying, you can be any religion or you can be no religion. What I'm talking about is um, this universe, you know, this universal concepts of working with energy and oneness. And so it's actually true for everybody. And you can layer that on top of a religion or you don't have to be a religion. Um, because sometimes I think the word um, spiritual and religion um, you know, can be a little fuzzy for people. Yeah. So I just want to say that up front was that he was really presenting a universal message that is so useful for helping to alleviate suffering. Um, and you know, in all the ways that we see it here today, still comparison, not feeling good enough, not feeling enough, not feeling like we have enough, like we're not doing enough. And all of that comes from this, you know, the, the core root, which is over identifying with the ego, um, what yoga calls the pseudo soul or what Wayne Dyer says the less than 2% of who we are, this, this shell that we see that the ego works with the five senses. So it's like what we're seeing with our physical eyes and hearing. So it's like looking out on social media or Instagram or, you know, meta. Right. It's and identifying with phenomena that's arising within consciousness. So you're identifying with the contents of consciousness instead of the precondition of it. And so we, exactly. we use ego as this symbol for ourselves to house emotions, feelings, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of exactly. judgment, fear. We put our self-worth in that. And then we give our power away all the time because we're yeah. trying to get what our needs are from the outside. So we're trying to get love from other people mm. and compliments or approval or people to agree with us. We're just trying to get all this stuff. And so that creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of over-efforting and just a lot of suffering in general. So the solution to the problem isn't found in the same place where the problem is, right? So most people are trying to make the ego more shiny. Oh, well, you know, I don't want to age, so let me do more, you know, procedures or work. Or, you know, I don't feel good enough because I don't have enough money, so let me do more, do more out here. Right. Um, so what Yogananda was talking about with Kriya Yoga, which is um, what he called the super highway to, to really um, connecting with the infinite, is a set of very specific practices and techniques for, um, and it's, you know, some of it pulls from Raja Yoga, from the king, like the royal yoga, about how we move from um, always being out here, which is basically our peripheral nervous system, which is what the ego is engaged with, into one of the limbs of yoga, first of all, which has been the life changer for me when I started to really get this, which is pratyahara, which is withdrawing the senses. So what does that mean in everyday life? It means I am so centered in here. Now I'm, on, I'm in my shashunda nadi, I'm in my central energy channel. So I can validate myself I can actually see my patterns and realize, oh, this is because I've been trying to get so much from out here. I can give love here. I can validate my feelings. I can do so much within here. So it means we don't get caught up as much in the drama of life. It means we're not so concerned about that conversation we replay in our head 50 times. Or we're yeah. like, oh my God, that post I did got all these yeah. mean comments. We, we bring the energy um, back inside day in and day out. And then we connect to this, um, you know, the terminology and what the book is really uh, centered around is connecting to the true self. And the true self is this, we could say this, um, the voice of the heart, the intuition, the stable 
this stable part of us, this resource inside of us that we can call on. It's infinitely creative. It's expansive. It's infinitely loving. Um, it has all this energy inside of it. It's where we can pull our best ideas from. So instead of always being, you know, identified out here and trying to see what's trending and try to create an idea from the outside in, instead we start to live life from the inside out and everything transforms. Yeah. You, you, le- you utilized a operative word, the drama of life. So in Hinduism uses that concept of drama as the Leela or the Maya, the great play that is playing out or the illusion uh, of, of life as perceived with the five senses. And there's a, there's a wonderful metaphor, um, that, that Yogananda uses, I believe in the book, I don't really remember, but that we perceive life when we perceive it with in our ego mind, with our five senses, as light being projected onto a screen. And it's being projected by some infinite direct cosmic director of the film. And it gets shined onto the screen through this instrumentality of of light being, being projected on the screen. But, and then we become absolutely immersed and mesmerized and enchanted (laughs) with this drama that is playing out. And like you mentioned some of them, how do I look? How many likes did I get on that post? You know, do I have the right job? Do I have a house that's big enough? Do I have a car that's great enough? You know, do I need that new dress to feel whole? All that kind of stuff. And we become highly identified with this drama that exists in this external space. And the key is to find that U-turn to relieve ourselves of those external senses and to look inward to to relieve ourselves of this notion of avidya, avidya, which is basically not being able to truly see or ignorance. What are we ignoring (laughs) within our own self? And the, um, the realization that all of these external agents are simply uh, the kind of infinite source kind of with masks on, the realization of this great uh, drama or play that is going on helps us to, um, to, in a way, relieve ourselves of the needs of the external world and and recognize phenomena just as transitory passings. Yes. And uh, and at least in more traditional Hinduism or Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, um, that is the ability to sort of initially recognize yourself as the subject and objects just arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment is is the first key in um acknowledging the atman the true self yes and then there's the then the bridge to the brahman which is that actually the atman the true self there is no differentiation or delineation between my true self and the infinite source of yes. God or spirit. Self with a capital S. Right. And this is uh, it's also echoed in, in Buddhism, kind of the, in the last stages of the Eightfold Noble Path, you have dhyana, 
meditation, sort of mindfulness meditation, uh, non-judgmental presence of phenomenon arising and subsiding in consciousness, which is also Chan in Chinese and Zen in Japanese. And then you have that final eighth step, which is Samadhi, which yes. also appears in, in Hinduism. And Emerging. in some ways, I believe Yogananda as well, Oh yes, which is full integrated consciousness that there is no difference between the experience of what it's like to be me and all this phenomenon that I actually am experienced. And that is true holistic union. And, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a path. <laughs> it, it's a path. And you know what you're saying, Jeff, about like this, this play of light, the Leela, the Maya, the things that's the things um, that are that we're seeing. There's also the the darkness, and that's part of it as well. And Yogananda teaches us that it's there for contrast. It's there, you know, so we can we can learn and we can see, and we see that within ourselves. So there's this duality within the oneness, which is there's part of us that's becoming. So to speak, there's the human part of us that's stumbling along and making yeah. mistakes <laughs> and learning and evolving. And then there is the true self, which is already complete. It's already whole. So one of the big teachings that Yogananda mm. says, and also Swami Sri Yukteswar, who is Yogananda's guru, says um, they're very emphatic about learning lessons, but letting go of the past and particularly um, with our behavior. So what I mean by that, and this is something I cover in the I am whole chapter, I think um, one of the things that drags us down as humans is you know we we remember we're really hard on ourselves and so we remember all the mean things or the bad things we've done and that creates a lot of guilt and shame and that actually drags down our whole energy we can be talking and but that is somehow in our subconscious we may think oh but you wouldn't really like me if you knew i did this or this or this mm -hmm. so it's something that we carry around with us sort of like what carl jung talks about with the shadow so one of the practices that i talk about up front so the first part of the book is getting past the big blocks so so you can even get on the path in the first place. So that's fearlessness, wholeness. The second part is embodying more of the true self qualities like intuition and real confidence. And then the third part, once you have that, is really how do you take this formless, creative, unique energy and put it into our best stuff? So the longest chapter in the book is actually called You Are a Creator and Abundance and Magnetism. But anyways, back to wholeness, the practice is um, after you meditate, <laughs> so you're less reactive and you can, you can be, and you can also be more honest with yourself. You make a list of, let's say, call, what I call the sun qualities. So all these outward qualities we like to show, we can rattle off. I'm a good listener. I'm generous. I'm a great friend to Jeff, like all these different things. And then we look to what the lunar qualities or, you know, these parts of us that we don't really like to, sh we disown them. So it's, you know, sitting and saying, oh, well, I can be generous, but maybe I can also be stingy. I can be judgmental. I can be mean. And what happens as you write them out, you're bringing them out of the shadow and you go back to this exercise, it gets deeper and deeper. But you'll notice if you get out of your mind and you then pay attention to the sensations in your body, the ego is going to have a reaction. So you mm. feel it in your body. So emotions are energy in motion. So you actually feel um, the sensations. It could be in your gut or your heart starts to race. And what you want to do is you want to sit with that and you just want to let them go through. So it's the practice of witnessing the Maya, the Leela, including our behaviors, including our characteristics. Mm. And once we see them side by side, then we go into realizing, oh, yeah, that's my, you know, my behavior is unstable. Um, you know, I have all these different parts of me. We grow in compassion and then we go underneath to the true self is actually 
beyond all our behaviors, all these things, all these attributes we think about our personality, good and bad. There is a part of us that actually is um, beyond all of that. That is the true self. So the more we connect to that part underneath, of course, we want to learn the lessons, clean up the mess, you know, apologize, do whatever we need to do, but then let that go. And then the true self actually starts to um, expand the more and more we connect to it in regular meditation and regular stillness and re regular introspection, which is a huge part of Yogananda's teachings, continually introspecting. The true self expands. And then that starts to be that extension of our behaviors. And you're yeah. talking about more of that samadhi, not full samadhi, but samadhi in everyday life, where how we speak and how we act really is an extension of who we are because we're more anchored in the true self. Yeah. And that, that gets to something that you write about in the book and a topic that I love to excavate um, around love. Big and, one. And really transmuting love from something that you need to get Huge to something that becomes an effusive state of being in which you are constantly giving. And when you are in that effusive, expansive state of giving, that is the true self. That is the um, the exploitation of your essence to connect all the time, to bring together opposition. And so, because you have a lot of love in your life right now. And there's obviously relational love, there's transactional love, there's conditional love, there's unconditional love. How, take us on sort of the journey of unpacking true love on this way yes. to find the, the capital S self. Well, so maybe I, I want to give a couple concrete examples, Jeff. I feel like we've been a little esoteric for a second, yeah, so, fine, yeah. which you and I can geek out on yeah. forever. But I, I talk about in the book the um, the example of the Himalayan musk deer. Yes, I which love this. I love this story. Yeah. This you know, Yogananda tells this story in the Self Realization Fellowship lessons. Um, which are home study lessons where you can learn Kriya. And basically it is an actual species of deer that lives in the Himalayas. And a certain time of year, this musk gets secreted from a sack in their abdomen. And it has this, you know, really potent smell and it makes the deer start to go bananas. They're trying to find the source. So they start to race around. They're looking under the logs, behind the rocks, they're going and going. And some of them work themselves up into such a frenzy because they can't find the source that they literally run off the cliffs and they die. <laughs> yeah. So all the while, the love or the, the, the musk that they were looking for was inside of them. Mm. And so I look back on my life and I, you know, I make this face, but, you know, again, we're all on the journey. And I, you know, sometimes we look back, Jeff, we're like, oh shit, like, how did I think that was a good idea, right? Like that relationship or where we were. Um, but, you know, we are where we are. And I will say, like, I've always, you know, dated really great people, but doesn't mean they were right for me. So in my journey, I went through that period I, I explained, which is around when we met and I was on my own and I was a single mom and I was living with Emerson, my older son. And I met with a monk from the Self-Realization Fellowship from Yogananda's organization. And he said, treat your home like an ashram. This is before COVID. So for five <laughs> months, I barely left. I took care of him. Of course, I did my work, but I, this is when I just read thousands of pages of scripture, Jeff. I mean, I just went deep and deep. Um, and after that period, you know, and then I was going, I was in self, I was going in, meditating a lot. And then I started to emerge. And the biggest thing I noticed was a sense of um, autonomy 
and a real sense of trust that I never realized I didn't have. And the trust was for myself. And the autonomy was, oh, I don't need that much from other people. So it was like, I was starting to feel this explosive love coming Mm. out from me. And it was different than anything I had experienced. And it wasn't for any particular reason. Like someone sent me a nice text or I saw a really cute cat or whatever it is. (laughs) It was just these like heart bombs. And it, it was because all this energy was concentrated inside. So a few months later after that, I was at this random dinner party. Um, and it was someone who had come on my podcast and someone I didn't really know that well, invited me to a dinner party in Venice Beach. So I go to this dinner party and one of the people ended up being my future husband, John. Now, Jeff, you met my husband. Oh, so, yes. you know, if I was in my thinking brain, I do not think we would ever have gotten together. He is completely on the surface, not my type. You know, we say he's like, you know, completely covered in tattoos, a gold grill in his teeth, um, plant-based. He was this huge meat smoker, <laughs> like, um, you know, <laughs> motorcycles, MMA. But I was so tuned in and I felt complete. I didn't feel like I was trying to get anything. I wasn't evaluating. I wasn't looking. I was just being and vibing. And then he came over to me and I was like, oh, I I recognize this connection and it was so organic and it flowed. So I will say that I believe this is an experience that everyone can develop is that, you know, we're always, the ego thinks we have to get all this stuff. Stuff. And so we walk around the world, like having a conversation, but really thinking about, oh, this is my objective, right. or like I need to insert this, or thinking about what I'm going to say, getting, 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 versus being the source. Because the source yeah. is inside of us. That's right. The metaphor of the, the mosque deer is such a good one because there it is, hidden in plain sight inside of you. Love is not something that you need to chase that is external. It's something that you have to cultivate that is internal. Yes. You know, Wayne Dyer said, you don't need to manifest anything in your life. You just have to manifest what you already are. And um, and I think part of that, as, as you probed at, is... Um, is relieving yourself of needs yes. or relieving more specifically relieving the ego of its needs now you know and you could i suppose superimpose superimpose maslow's hierarchy of needs here if you wanted to but you know as you um, begin to kind of take care of kind of basic needs in your life of food and water and air and shelter and general security. And then there's like belonging and esteem and respect and status. And as you begin to actually satisfy all of these different needs, you move up this pyramid towards self-actualization or self-realization when you're actually not thrusting the needs of your ego onto your love partner or onto the world around you, you've actually taken care of most of your needs yourself. You've made yourself whole. Yes. And from that place of wholeness, you are in a, you, you have established the ground conditions for you to give, for you to give back. And love ceases to be this sort of emotion that arises and subsides moment to moment in consciousness it's not something that you are trying to get like at the very base level of of love there's lust like "Mm, let me me get some of that you know i want some of that it's gonna make (laughs) me feel good yeah yeah and then it's like (laughs) after lust it's like you know 
Kimberly's quite smart. She makes me feel really good about myself. I really like her personality. Like, okay, I've inched up slightly on the ladder on the hierarchy of understanding love is. And then it's like, oh, well, Kimberly and I are in uh, a, a transactional relation. I'm going to be on her podcast and then she's going to be on my podcast and we're going to blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, yeah. there's conditional. I mean, you move your way up to sort of the platonic platonic form of love or you know the chinese have this with qian the the ideal kind of version of what life reality should be here on earth or even in the kabbalah they have this with the emanations that we spend our life trying to glimpse and witness the true forms of these things of love and wisdom and courage and moderation and all these great virtues and finally we get to this place or close of ultimate capital L love and life can then really be something um, that has a tremendous amount of happiness involved into it because we are in a state of giving. And I know that you, you referenced this in your book quickly. It's very hard to gauge happiness, but it, there are certain studies that actually correlate our ability to give and the amount of time that we spend giving with happiness mm. and that is some form of attainment of union there yes totally i feel like um you know this this the word that keeps coming up when i'm listening to is this uh, expansion mm. right so yeah. a lot of this is experiential so i know for me when i'm practicing these techniques and going into union not just relaxing Sometimes I think people think yoga is, or meditation is just relaxing, but we're not just relaxing the senses. We're actually wanting to use techniques that bring us into that union. And so when we go there, there is this feeling of expansion. Um, and so one of you know in some of the other chapters where I talk about abundance creating, when we expand our ideas to benefit other people, for instance, now we're going beyond our limited little ego or my little circle. I just care about my four people in my family or whatever it is. By nature, we're tapping into something bigger. So the chances of success, the chances of enlisting other people to help, um, it just exponentially grows so much. Instead of all these little ways we're trying to, you know, just get and manipulate and control the situation to get a raise or to get that one project, we realize we're just playing so small. Yeah. You know, it's like just expand, give it away, love, you know, it sounds simple, but these practices really help to direct our energy there. Yeah, totally. I, I was doing a metta meditation this morning and a metta meditation is loving kindness where yes. you focus on someone or even yourself and you direct them utter love and support and you wish them uh, wealth and health and you're energy becomes completely invested in their well-being. So I started very much with my daughter, Phoebe, mm. my eldest daughter. She has sort of an inflection point coming up in her life. We were talking mm -hmm. about it earlier. She's applying to colleges. I want her to go to your alma mater. Yes. She wants to go somewhere else. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but I was just uh, meditating in this space of just sending her complete unconditional love. Mm. And just sitting in the feeling of that where I need nothing. It's yes. like for this brief moment of time for 10 minutes in the morning, despite how crazy your day is, despite all the hardships that you may be enduring at any moment, to find 10 minutes where you relieve yourself of all needs. 
And from that place, there's a tremendous amount of compassion can spring forth. So at first I started thinking about my daughter, the way you might think about Emerson or about Moses, uh, your sons. And, um, And from there, I naturally went to other people. Yes. Some people who I don't even like. I hope you included me, Jeff. <laughs> I like you. No, but I you're, love you're really you. <laughs> but, and then I was actually. It was spontaneously spreading. It was spontaneously yeah. spreading. And I started to feel and, and have the sensation, because that's just the best word we have for it. It's a clunky word. These kind of realizations are very clunky because it's to like try to. It's an experience. It's an experience. But what I began to feel as a sensation is that there is no one in the world that I don't wish that kind of well-being and, yes. and, and health. And, I, and even the people that we think are confections of depravity and sin, we actually at the end of the day want them, maybe more than anyone, to be happy yes. and to enjoy well-being because if they are then they will then they also will not need to fulfill their egos and um and this is i think you know the you know as we kind of circle around some of the core teachings of, of yogananda um and of course all of these great sages and mystics that they were teaching you know, many of the same messages. I mean, there's a consilience behind this, what uh, your friend, brother Satyananda yes. calls um, the eternal religion. What's the word for that? It's There's a Sanskrit. Oh, did you listen to that podcast? I did, yeah. Isn't he amazing? He's great, which um, is a Sanatan um, yeah, Dharma it's, it's or something? Yeah, it's Satyanam Dharma, yeah. the eternal religion, the eternal um, connection back in. Yeah, he is actually the monk who told me to take that five-month right. break and yeah. then married John and I. I remember, and you released. Oh, the, you were, I was there. You were there. It was like it was so surreal. And you um, released the doves. It was, you know, it was in this house that I moved out. You know, I left my other partner and moved into this house. So I, immer- you know, I was there. Like, what, what am I doing with my life? And then, right before we left to move to here to Topanga, we got married. So it was this huge transition. House. So much happened. Um, you know, and you also bring up a really great point, Jeff, I love that um, that meditation you were doing about loving kindness and really calling that in. And you mentioned something um, practical. It was 10 minutes. Hmm. So the subtitle for this book is Practical Enlightenment for Everyday Life, because you and I are both big readers. And sometimes I read some of these books. I love Eckhart. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, but like, what do we do in like everyday life? Like, how do we actually make this part of our life? So, um, you know, a lot of the practices that I, that I teach here and it, it builds, there's four meditation chapters and there's lots of other practices that you can do for 90 seconds. If you get triggered, if you feel like you're not, if you're comparing whatever it is, but I just want to emphasize that it doesn't mean like, you know, you have to meditate for five hours a day or whatever it is. It's like, you know, if the Titanic was one degree uh, over from the beginning of his journey, history would have changed. So even 10 minutes in the morning, I consider that a really core part of the morning practice. Drink your hot water lemon, take your probiotics, meditate for 10 minutes, connect in so that you're less reactive. So you're less, you know, apt to reach for food cravings and foods that, um, you know, will 
try to soothe the need. And by the way, Jeff, what you said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of people saw me as food. I was always working with energy. Yeah. My first book was like, don't look at numbers, energy of digestion, energy here. Um, so it was always this different way of looking at things. And food is, I think, a starting point on the wellness journey for a lot of people. It's certainly not the end. But all the yogis do talk about food because it is such a, it has such an impact on our energy and our ability to meditate. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, this just sprung to mind very quickly because we both live in Topanga and Topanga can be somewhat of an eccentric place. Mm -hmm. And as I was driving up here, I was right behind your car and I would have been, were? yeah, and I would have been ahead of it, but I, I drove by a sign that said, slow down or you, <laughs> or you'll miss all the naked people. Oh my God. <laughs> I thought that was essentially Topanga, but there was a greater spiritual message there wow. is that slow down yes or in this case you'll miss all the naked people but but <laughs> so slowing, you'll miss life in general but slowing down yes in slowing down you find the space the gaps the gaps and as a musician it took me 50 years to refine my ability to use space. Yes. To not play too many notes, but mm. it's the pregnancy mm. between the notes mm. that often carries the most yes. emotional salience. So I know you, you, you talk about that. You talk about finding space and gaps. I do. There's a, um, there's a chapter called Finding the Gaps, literally. Um, and the yogis say, and Yogananda teaches that even when we're inhaling and exhaling, there's still a lot of doing going on. Yeah. So it's in these like little micro moments, pausing in between the inhales and the exhales and really experiencing stillness. It's like we're dropping somewhere. Again, beyond words, we, you know, it's just like this expansive place, the place of the true self. And once we start to do that, what I experienced was it really did start to leak into all different parts of my life. There was more of a gap between reacting and like, oh, like, you know, why does, you know, I usually react this way. Why does that bother me? Right. And then there's more of a gap um, between doing things. And I'll say, Jeff, um, I do create a lot, you know, in my time, but I, spend so much time meditating. I, you know, I have my midday more meditation. So I do take these gaps and I find that it makes me so much more productive because then we're, we're not like thrashing around. It's we're moving from deeper waters. There's more power behind what we're doing and there's less doing, but it's more impactful. Yeah. It's <laughs> funny that you talk about breath and space. Yes. Um, because Yogananda in autobiography of a yogi, he talks about the the animals or the mammals with the highest respiratory rate tend to be the ones that live the least amount yes. of years. And those like a tortoise or a snake even, um, I believe, who have very, very slow breath rates tend to have incredible longevity. Yes. And even the guru of the guru of the guru of Yogananda, Babaji yep, is, param, 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 is right is <laughs> often depicted as blue because he doesn't actually have to breathe. Or there's some story there that you probably know more than I do, but that Yogananda was, you know, and I'm reading into this a tiny bit, but he um, he often talked about how within the natural world, 
there is an emergence of the sort of coincidence of opposites. Mm. So we have exhale and inhale. Mm-hmm. Inhale. We have sol luna. Um, yeah. You know, sun and, sun and moon. We have plant life or photosynthetic life and mammals, uh, non-photosynthetic cells. We have an atom, a fundamental structure of the universe that is balanced between negatively charged electrons and positively charged protons. We have electricity, which is this dance between (laughs) negative charges and positive charges that are attracting and repulsing each other, that all of these the yin and the yang in Taoism or Confucianism, yes. that we see this coincidence of opposites, male and female. We see these coincidence of opposites that emerge as a reflection of nature. And that it is this infinite spirit or this infinite wisdom or intelligence or logos that is working to cohere these opposites into union, into concert, into collaboration, into new life. And so, you know, one of the Kriya teachings, and maybe you could help me with this because I actually don't really totally understand it, is putting your inhale inside your exhale and your exhale inside your inhale such that you slow down and release kind of life force or prana from the heart. So, and this kind of bridges into pranayama, et cetera. Yes. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the use of breath and how uh, useful that has been for you and any Oof. practices that people might want to use. Yeah. So um, in you know, I'm able to talk about like the the public works that he talked about, and, and the teachings are inspired by that. If you want right. to go really deep into Kriya Yoga, I highly recommend the lessons that go on for like four years that I did um, you know, over 10 years ago now. But um, but we were saying before about this, this play of opposites, Yogananda describes it as, you know, all these different waves and underneath it is this, you know, the bed of the ocean. Mm. So the wave can't exist without the ocean, but the ocean can exist without the wave, right? So this like whatever creative intelligence source, God, whatever word you want to use is underneath all of that. So like we were saying, seeing the different parts of our behavior and realizing there's something underneath all the things we see as good and bad, black and white, all of that, there's um, a stable part underneath. So when you're working with the breath and Kriya, um, Yogananda talked a lot about the the magnetism of the spine. He talked a lot about the Shushumna Nadi and his focus point was a lot when the third eye, which we focus on in different meditations, but how it activates the medulla oblongata, which is this, you know, this notch here in the back of the skull and it's this ganglion and nerves. So when we're activating this, it's also lighting up different parts of our brain that help with more um, emotional resilience and equanimity and also creativity. So in the practices, um, when you're getting into the inhales and exhales, there's one practice where he recommends, you know, double exhaling out. <sighs> to really understand what it's like to be empty in your lungs. Because most people exhale and there's still a lot of um, prana, there's still a lot of air left. So he's really emphasizing um, slowing down so that you're finding more of these breathless states. And of course, like if you're pregnant, if you have a condition, like, you know, be careful of what you're practicing. But what I, you know, what was interesting to me today is um, I see a lot of these like breath work 
um, practices that are, you know, for something else, but not interiorizing. They're like, you're going faster and exciting. Right. And Yogananda said the hallmark of going deeper into the true self is your breath gets more and more quiet and still. Right. So in practical terms, Jeff, when I started living this, when I started to notice things, because again, it's not your breath slows down. It's like slow-mo, but then like the moment-to-moment -moment experiences start to slow down. So I started to notice this pattern. This is a couple years ago. I'm like, oh, it really, like I feel something. It really bothers me when people interrupt me or when they don't like agree with me. If I give this long thing of like, <laughs> oh, don't eat dairy or whatever it is and at the end, they're like, I'm still going to eat it. And I'm like, why do I give a shit? You know, like, why does it bother me so much? And then slowing down, like, you know, then journaling, like introspecting, which again was a huge part of Yogananda's work. We're not just meant to go from thing to thing. I'm at work. Now I'm dropping into a yoga class. I'm going to dinner and I'm going to sleep and doing the same thing. We want to look at who we are being in moment to moment experiences. So then I, I, I started, oh, what is this? And then I could see Jeff, you know, it was you know, painful when I was looking at it, but it was like, oh, the reason it bothers me so much is because I have this big childhood wound of, you know, maybe I'm not worthy of being seen or heard or listened to. Mm. And then that triggered on like, oh, you know, this deep belief, like maybe I'm not lovable, right? So then when you can see it, it's like bringing this, this um, pattern out that was like in the shadow. So it comes out and then through the work, like you sit in it, you breathe into it and then back to the love, like, oh, like, but I can feel love in me. I can give love to myself. I don't need other people to validate me because before I was like, always like almost like a, like a puppet dancing, like, look, look at this. Now you have to agree or now you have to see me. Um, there's so much more peace than just sitting back that I have found um, realizing, oh, like I was doing all that from my ego. I was really trying to get that validation. Um, so this idea of like slowing down the breath it slows down the, the 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 monkey brain, like the endless thoughts, so that we can start to see the gaps between the thoughts. We can start to see, like, where did this come from? Like, is this really me? Is this from my heart or is this from the ego? And then the wounds start to come up. And this work has really helped me heal so many of those wounds that I didn't mm. even know I had. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for example, right now, as we're engaging and very, very focused on the present moment. It's one of the reasons actually I love speaking with <laughs> you and podcasts in general is that I am utterly present. Yes. Um, there's no distraction that is able to come pull me into a million different directions or monkey brain, as you say, that yes. every branch is a thought and I'm this wild primate just swinging from one to another. <laughs> um, but in this kind of experience of connection, like the one we're having right now, my breath rate is so slow. Yes. I can I'm barely notice it. Right. And um and as humans in in modernity, we tend to over-breathe. We're actually breathing too quickly most of the time because we tend to be in this like hyper agitated state. We're spending way, way too much time, first of all, in our sympathetic nervous system. So we're kind of in this kind of psychological fight or flight mode all the time where we're breathing too much. But just even in regular life, yes. A, we're mouth breathing, which is not good. And <laughs> we, we need to nostril breathe for a whole bunch of different reasons. But that uh, James Nestor has this wonderful book called Breath. It came mm. out, I think, last year. 
and he started to map optimal breath patterns against um, uh, Vedic chants. Wow. And um, Zen Buddhist chants and et cetera. And he found that many of the old uh, chants mapped perfectly on top of optimal breathing rates. Wow. This is fascinating. Um, and, you know, really when we're kind of in our optimal state, at least according to James Nestor, we're taking inhales for five and a half seconds and exhales for five and a half seconds. But, and there's a, there's a beautiful sort of geometry um, to that because we end up taking about five and a half breaths for every minute instead of like the <laughs> absurd amount of breathing that we, um, that we end up doing. But that, that in, um, for Yogananda, a lot of this was about sort of decarbonating yes. the, the blood. Yes, that term. <laughs> he, um, and, actually, um, and actually finding a place of uh, equilibrium between kind of oxygenated and carbonated blood such that we actually can release additional prana life force. But this gets, you know, pretty esoteric. But, um, but I think that just even, and, and as you say, I think... Uh, you see, you know, there's a there's a lot of breath practices out there right now that are used for myriad purposes, like you know the Wim Hof or the Tumo breath, which has become quite popular. That has a completely different application. Yeah, that's about um, creating epinephrine and alertness in your body and like <laughs> right. you know, right, this whole right. thing. That's not the breath work that we're talking about here at all. No, no, this is about again, union and contacting and um, deepening the relationship in with the true self. And so there, there's two parts of it. There's the practices that we do. We sit, we dedicate these 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, to doing the practices. Um, and then there's also checking in or being aware of that so it leaks more and more into our life. And one of the most important things we can do to keep that breath, you know, <laughs> like slower Except, you know, besides when we're in our practice is avoiding what Yogananda called excessive emotionalism. Mm. So again, it goes back to being so tied into the drama and what's going on that we feel like we have to chime in, we have to fight, we have to defend, we have to comment, we have to get into all this stuff. So again, that's the power of Pratyahara is just withdrawing and sitting back and watching more, watching things play out. Um, and it is natural, of course, we're human. Sometimes we're going to feel big emotions. If things happen. You know, my five-year-old is <laughs> getting, you know, into that tantrum mode now. Yeah. But just really um, what Yogananda calls self-mastery is really the more we can not get caught up, the more we can uh, really stay in equanimity. So letting the sensations rise and fall before we speak. Yeah. And naturally then our breath is more calm through the day. Yeah. There's a, a notion in Stoicism um, called cognitive reappraisal. It's not just in Stoicism, but I, I tend to see it through a Stoic lens. And cognitive reappraisal is essentially the cultivation of space between stimulus and response. Yes. So that great Viktor Frankl quote, which you know gets used quite often, is you know that freedom and liberation is to be found within the cultivation of that space between stimulus, some kind of event happening, and our response to that event. Exactly. And so oftentimes, 
uh, you know, something will happen in the course of human events. We'll see something on Instagram or on Facebook or Twitter or something, and we'll immediately have an emotional reaction to it. And then we'll so, follow that emotion. And before you know it, we've, you know, we've sent some disparaging comment or we're just stewing in our own juices of anger or indignation or jealousy or rage or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, we, we see these lessons across so many different traditions is that, that A, that ability to cultivate space between an event and our response to it. Yes. The acknowledgement that oftentimes our emotion is derived in our judgment of the event and not the event itself, you know, like a cop comes whizzing by and you're late to pick up Emerson and you have to pull over to the side of the road. And, you know, you say some, you might have like some derogatory viewpoint of cops anyways, who knows? And that might be justified or might not be, but you, <laughs> but you know, you're over on the side of the road and you're like, fucking hell, you it know, goes and on I'm and late on. and like, blah, da, 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 da. and you know, and, but you have no idea that cop might be off to, you know, to deal with a kidnapping or something like that. But we have, you know, these immediate reactions to things. And so often, you know, they're, they're mediated or they're governed by our judgment of things. And really being able to, you know, engage in some of these practices like meditation. And you said you framed it beautifully such, such that it leaks into our life. Or sometimes I say such that it actually punctuates our regular life. Because you don't want meditation or breath work just to be confined to this sacred oh, time no. over here in the morning. What you really want is that to be your life. <laughs> So in the confidence chapter, um, which I think is like chapter 14, there's um, there's a 90-second practice you do when you start to get triggered because, again, it's the ego that looks outward and says, oh, like, I guess I'm not good enough or they get jealous or they get competitive, it gets competitive or whatever it is. Um, and so I started thinking about this concept of confidence. It's a really interesting mm -hmm. one, especially in our society. And, I, you know, so many women write into me from our community saying, I just don't feel confident. I don't know what to do. I don't feel good about myself. And so for me, and I think in our society, it was like, I get confident from what I look like and what I do. So yeah. here's my achievements. Yeah, I can list them on my resume, right? right? Or it's like numbers yeah. or all this stuff that we see. Um, but really, Yogananda talks about confidence, unshakable confidence coming from, you know, when Moses asked the Almighty, what, you know, what is this? What are you? And he said that one statement, I yeah. am that yeah. I am. Yeah. So that is like, at first I didn't get it, you know, years ago when I read this and then I thought, oh, I am that I am. We are alive and breathing. We are these unique creations. That's where true confidence comes from. Just being so connected to this unique essence the other stuff is, you know, we're playing with it. It's fun. We're doing or we're not doing. But to show up in that full beingness and knowingness and, and radiating that, 
really um, helps other people see it in themselves too. So this 90 second practice that I have in that chapter is, you know, when you catch yourself comparing or having that reaction on Facebook or whatever, it's taking that pause and really starting to link that reaction to, oh, I'm identifying with my ego again. Right. So it's the pause and then it's getting into your body. I find really helpful because it's the mind that keeps the thoughts going, right? And, you know, one feeling can be justified by a million different thoughts. Oh, but they were really an asshole. Shouldn't have said this, whatever it is. So we get into the body. And then um, we feel the breath and then we can actually self-generate the opposite emotion. This is based on some of the research from the Heart Math Institute that backs up what Yogananda is saying. Go into um, expansiveness, go into compassion, go into you know love, like deep love, whatever it is. So we're resetting in daily life over and over again, even in those 90 seconds. So what I found for me, again, which is why I'm so passionate about sharing this, is at first it really does feel like a bit more effort because it's like we're learning a new skill, we're learning to run for the first time. But over time, it becomes um, easeful. And some mm. of the stuff that was like, oh, you know, Dr. Um, David Hawkins, who I also reference in the book, he says, you know, before, now you're at this different stage of consciousness. So things become stunningly obvious. Like, oh, yeah, like I don't need to get pulled into that. Oh, that was a wound. But so we just do the practices, we do the practices, and then over time it really does start to click. I think it's so important because we can understand this philosophy, but we really want to have the tools for living it day by day. Yeah. I mean, the enemy of confidence is really the fear that you're not enough, oh, yeah. right? Well, that's the ego, yeah. That's the ego. And you don't have to turn your head far to see depictions and images, particularly if you're a woman, and I have three daughters, of, you know, marketing billboards oh, or, or advertising that. that essentially consistently tell you that you're not enough, and then in turn, market you services and products and trinkets to address that perceived deficiency. Of course. And that is the modern state of living in the Western world. And I listen, I'm not going to excoriate capitalism completely. It's <laughs> pulled a lot of people out of poverty and given people uh, some degree of well-being. Um, but this is really one of the kind of more deleterious sides of it is that, you know, capitalism essentially set is a system that's set up to convince us that we are deficient, that we are not enough. And it implants a certain fear around that and that really undermines our self-confidence. Of course. And when we're, our self-confidence is undermined, well, then what do we do? We seek out external agents to address those perceived deficiencies. Again, now, they're, they're trying to find the solution in the same place where the problem is. Right. Like it's so shinier, that could be buy alcohol, more stuff. drugs, consumerism, Instagram, sugar, any one of these All you of know, it. addictions that, that we might have. And that's why... You know, the lessons in your book are, are so essential because they're already there within us. We don't have to chase anything. They're, they're dormant. You know, this quote I love by Yogananda, Jeff, where he says, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, the, the diamond is in you. It's you. All you have to do is scrape off the mud. So it's not about spending all this money and acquiring all this stuff. Like I have to go out and get all this stuff. Yeah. It's literally getting to know and wake up this dormant part of you. And it's inside all of us. So we all have access to this yeah, energy. I mean, the, the lotus grows out of the muddy puddle. 
right? Yes. I mean, and, and, you know, it's not going to, we need to engage in the work um, itself in order to become that lotus flower. Um, but the work is there available to us. And, you know, and it exists in many different traditions and modalities. Um, but you know, what's, what's funny about that, Jeff, is sometimes, you know, let's say with a book like mine, you're like, oh, do I have to like do all these practice and stuff? It's more work. And I say, yes, there's work, but I can almost guarantee it's not more work than you're already doing. Yeah. Like this arduous way of, you know, trying to grow your business or find a partner, whatever it is. Um, again, I always like to speak from personal experience because I want to show like this, these are living teachings. It's not just, you know, philosophy. For me, when I started doing this, I mean, it gets deeper and deeper, but it, there is this feeling almost like stepping into a, a river, you know, like writing this book, like we talked about, it was just, I would meditate, I would tune in and then it would, it would flow, you know, and a lot of the ideas, the, um, the articles I write or, you know, the work that I do with Saluna or whatever it is, it just feels um, there is more easefulness. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect in life, but it means that we're meeting life each moment with this, this real fullness, this real wholeness. And so it's less of that, that desperate trying to get stuff all the time. And that's what I also, um, write about in the abundance chapter. I think abundance is a big concept for a lot of people. And it's like, you know, I was talking to someone this morning and she's like, I have the same goals on my New Year's list. My financial <laughs> goals are the same for the last five years and nothing changes. Same thing. You're looking to the same, you're trying to find the solution where the problem is. So to me, and Yogananda says this too, abundance is the fullness of right here and right now. Yeah. Um, anytime we're trying to get something, we're still in that lack energy. Something's missing. I need to acquire something versus this repeated vibration vibration of feeling whole and complete, there's a great power in that. People respond differently. People are like, oh, well, what are you into? What project are you working on? It does magnetize people in. There is a practical nature to it. Um, there's just way more flow. Yeah. Abundance immediately emerges when you love what you already have. Exactly. And, Gratitude. Fullness know, right fullness. here, right now. Yeah. And, you know, your friend who has that, that recurring New Year's list of resolutions, those are all things that are out there as if happiness is something out there and that there's a gap that exists between what we have and what we need to be happy. Now, certainly one way to address that gap is to keep chasing all of those things. But once you actually obtain those things, a shiny new object appears on the horizon pretty closely. Oh, and that gap, ending. And that gap you know, that chasm is, is apparent once again. So another way of going about it is actually, instead of thinking about life in, in that scarcity model of like what I don't have and what I might, what might make me happy, look at it through an abundant lens of like, wow, I actually love what I have. Yes. You know, there's all these stoic meditations where you actually visualize something that you already have and, and it could be sort of morbid at, at first glance but something that you cherish and treasure that you already have and then you imagine losing it mm. just for a moment and you sit in that feeling of like grief and god what would i have said 
you know, or how would I have treated this thing differently? Mm. And then you sort of come back to that triumphant realization of like, look at the treasure I have. I have have. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And it it goes back to expansion, right? Like Mm. where we put energy expands and expands. So that period where I was a single mom and I was living with Emerson by myself, but I just felt, you know, I was, I was feeling all this (laughs) fullness from the teachings. I was really finding that self-trust. I was finding that love and boy, did I love that little boy so much. Um, then the rest of my life was like messy. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to live in the future. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it was from that, that real, I wasn't looking at lack. I can honestly say, Jeff, and you remember we met during that time and I was, you know, so joyful. Like I was just happy with life. And then I met John. And so this expansion, like, okay, we got married, the soulmate partnership. And then we had another baby. So the love kept expanding. And then we got our house and then the farm in Hawaii and all this stuff. Um, And I share that because it really is true what you're saying. It's, um, it wasn't this like, oh, I got to deal. It wasn't like uh, chasing. Yeah. It was being in fullness. And yeah. that's the opposite of how I think most people try to create abundance. Absolutely. Well, we've talked a lot about the Tao yes. over the last year. We both love and the Tao. We both love the Tao. And, um, and that'll be episode two of oh, our podcast here. I love podcast on the but, Tao. Yeah. But just to dangle the idea, you know, there is this concept of Wu Wei, which is central to Lao Tzu and the Dante Chi, yes. which is um, action without effort, mm. or do nothing and nothing and everything gets done. Yeah, I do nothing and I leave nothing undone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just and flow. Yeah, and, and it is moving with the grain, cutting with the grain, moving with the flow of life, moving with the flow of the current, and of course, like you know, just to paint. Every vicissitude of life is just moving with the flow, you know, doesn't take into account some of the more, some of the bigger challenges and obstacles that we have. So I don't mean to suggest that all you need to do is do nothing. And that sounds unambitious. But at the same time, understanding and acknowledging some of the patterns of nature. Yes. And aligning yourself uh, with that coherence, you know, knowing that nature is always trying to pull opposites together you know nature is always trying is always thrusting towards coherence and you know you and i we're just we're really just this combination of of energy and information you know and i think that the 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 fire that exists within the logos within the fundamental intelligence of the world is connection Mm-hmm. is that we are here as energy and information yearning to connect mm-hmm. yearning to what you know um alan watts calls remember mm. he 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 casts remember he he says that the antonym of remember is dismember mm. that we're actually chopped up it's not forget it's actually we're dismembered as if like our limbs are chopped up and that one of the central projects of being human is to remember. Mm, come back into oneness. Is to come back into oneness. And, uh, and so this is a, you know, I think so many of the practices that, that you have embodied in your life and that, that mm. you communicate so beautifully in this book 
help people along that process of remembering who they already are. That's right. Because it's, again, the ego, that small, limited, self-serving. And that may feel like this shiny thing that you can kind of check off the box or something you could obtain. But then at the end, like we said, it's just empty and it doesn't feel good at all. Um, so there's this term that, you know, we can say it's um, the will of God, or we can just say simply the way of things. I think there's uh, translation of the Tao that talks about this way of things, which is right. this nature, the collective. And so when we're working on our goals, you know, another thing is uh, working to manifest things. It's so limited to just think about like me, 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 the way of things, this oneness, this connection is to really expand the goals. So it's including like, what can I work on that will serve the world and serve other people and bring people in? Yeah. In fact, there's something that you wrote. I think I dog-eared it. Is it in the oneness part? Uh, here, have it. <laughs> I love that you dog-eared it. Yeah. That makes me very happy as an um, author. Yeah. And, and by the way, that is one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of hard books. Yeah. I'm not an e-reader. Yeah, you can't really dog it. Oh, I like well, you to can like in underline. Audible a little bit. I make notes. <laughs> I'll read it. In order to grow your world, in order to really experience an epic life, you really have to do what the warrior does, and that is to give your life away. It sounds counterintuitive, counterintuitive, but consider this. The more love you give to others, the more you will get back. The more time you give to others, the more time you'll get back. The more you give, the more comes back to you. Now, you might not get that time back right away. You might not get that love back from someone you give it to, but it does come back to you. Call it the universal, universal law of reciprocity. Call it karma. Call it Bob. It doesn't matter. <laughs> give your life away and you get it back. Mm. That just struck me when I read it. So the warrior chapter is one of my favorite ones. You can tell that I was still reading the Bhagavad Gita when I was writing this. Um, and I think a lot of us don't think of us in terms of warriors, especially women. Maybe we think that's like, you know, the big battles and the little bit of violence, or whatever it is. But in essence, we are fighting this great battle every day, whether we realize it or not. It's the battle of, you know, the ego and the battle of the true self. And so um, to be a warrior means... And warrior for good. We can be a warrior for any way we want, but if we want to live from our hearts, it's about perseverance. It's about um, what Yogananda calls dynamic will, really focusing on our goals and following through. And in the first place, making sure our goals do expand beyond ourselves. Otherwise, we will always be miserable. I don't care if you make a billion dollars, you know, and you have all these things ticked off. Some of the most miserable people are these people that just accumulate and accumulate. It has, it, this is the natural law. Hmm. Talking about natural laws, like it has to, it has to include all of us. We are all waves in the ocean. Yeah, It's never going to feel good otherwise. No, and I, I think you do a great job reframing the, the concept or the notion of the warrior. Because as you say, it's so often depicted or personified as, you know, this kind of heroic male figure on the battlefield, sort of heedlessly throwing himself into the front lines or, or whatever. And yes, certainly there are, th that is a depiction. Um, but really the, at what is at the core of that is courage. Yes. And, and the ability to sacrifice oneself for some greater good. Yes. That is at the core of the honorable warrior. 
And that doesn't just happen on a battlefield. You know, that courage really, and Brene is incredibly articulate around this, is really vulnerability. It's like, are you willing to be hurt? Are you willing to be shamed, potentially? Are you willing to endure some sort of loss in order to move forward or to enact some sort of greater good? And that, again, it doesn't just happen on a battlefield. It happens anytime someone takes a risk in their life to start a new venture or come out of the closet as gay or to stand up for something that they believe in. So, you know, this idea of the the warrior as as and reframing bravery as um as vulnerability or as actually just investing into something that is greater than yourself, mm-hmm. I think is a beautiful notion. Beautiful, Jeff, you know, vulnerability. And also I would add to that non-attachment mm. because it means we're moving from this, um, like this, the spanda, like the intuition of our true self. We want to stand up for something. We want to put our energy into something. And Yogananda says in the commentary, um, throw yourself into the din of battle and do not worry about results. So that means instead of like the ego's like, but if I try this, what if, you know, people think I'm stupid or what if I fail? Being a warrior means you move from that pure inspiration and you stop worrying about, you know, the ego, what it's going to look like or how it's going to come out, you know, the fruits of your labor. You really pour um, your energy into right action. You take that, the Dharma, the righteous path. Yeah. Day by day. Yeah, and I think that this speaks to that idea of balancing wu-wei or effortless action with ambition. It doesn't mean that you forsake your goals. It's that you pursue your goals with a degree of non-attachment or equanimity such that if you fail, you're not going to judge yourself too hard or you're not going to judge yourself through the eyes of others. And in that sense, there is no failure. There's, There's just actually growth. Right. Because mistakes are only mistakes if you don't acknowledge them. And if you actually take a mistake, assess it, apply it to yourself and be protean and flexible and willing to admit you're wrong, well, that means you've just grown. Exactly. It's not a mistake anymore. Exactly. So these are the, uh, you know, these are some of these lessons that, you know, we've, we've had, we've taken our hard knocks to, to, to realize and the beauty about these this book that you write is that, you know, you're giving away a lot of what you have accrued from personal experience yes. for the sake of others. Oh gosh, Jeff, I, um, I've never felt so passionate about a book. Um, I look at, you know, what's going on in the world. And I think we, you know, in many ways we're in an interesting time. A lot of people are suffering more than ever. Like there's more a gap from the true self. And so it's these teachings need to be out in the world today. Yeah, I mean, the core of yoga is union, is to yoke, it's to bring together things that exist in opposites. It is the union of body and mind, it is union of self with the infinite spirit, it is the bringing together of everything that is positive, negative, and that is also applicable to what is left and right, even on the political Totally. And we're living in this time, obviously, of uh, extreme political polarization where people can't even seem to 
have a constructive conversation where public discourse has completely eroded, where we're just bunkered into echo chambers and atomized and completely identify with our political affiliations. That's essentially the opposite of union. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then it gets into these battles, the battles of the ego, like we said, it just, it's emphasizing the differences and reinforcing like, oh, this is my position and that's your position. Um, and imagine just a tremendous amount of energy, um, that comes from that and, and less and less unity, less and less harmony. And so people can dig their heels in and, you know, kind of go deeper and deeper or try to find, you know, the middle the the way, mid- the, yeah, the, the middle the path. Seeing each other's perspectives, yeah. at least. Yeah, I mean, I often argue that the most radical place to be right now is the middle. Yeah. Is to actually be <laughs> dedicated to fostering cooperation and coherence. There's so much, Marcus Aurelius has this wonderful quote, stop arguing about what a man should be and be one. Yeah, like Interesting. We have this constant sort of indignation and finger pointing of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a field on the other side of that. I'll meet you there. <laughs> Love that quote. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you were talking about earlier too, Jeff, about you know, yoga is union. So it's in it's in our everyday life. It's in our you know the way we approach politics and the way that we live. It's Tate. It's you know. I, I, what I one of my hopes with this book is that it really breaks the misconception a lot of people have that yoga is like I'm just going to the yoga studio and doing mm. some poses into something we can do moment to moment or, or call on moment to moment. And I think it's really significant that um, so it's the param 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 guru. Okay, so Yogananda's guru was Swami Sri Yukteswar, and his guru was Lahiri Mahashaya, mm. who received. Kriya from Babaji in the Himalayan mountains in Renakot, which is a place I took a pilgrimage to. You can actually go to Babaji's cave. You don't see his form necessarily, but yeah. he's around. <laughs> um, so it was significant because Lahiri Mahashaya was an accountant in the army. Right. So Kriya before this was like for the Brahmins, right? And for the priests, these techniques. And so it was like Babaji was, you know, pleading with God to say, these teachings are needed now more than ever. They need to be for the householder, for everyday life. So Lahiri Mahashaya was this everyday man, again, as an accountant who received these teachings and then started to disseminate them out um, into the world. And so it's like you said, like black, white, like separation, this, like yoga, meditation, true self, like this changes our moment to moment living. Like for me, living these teachings changes every breath it changes this conversation it changes the way i look at everything and just expands it enhances it so much <sighs> hmm. so i just want you know would want everyone to feel more of that expansion as well yeah well that is a a very empowering kind of um message because it's so easy to become overwhelmed by the enormity of the world's problems, feel agitated or paralyzed and numb. Yeah. But when you actually have practices, yes. these practices that are old and true, it empowers you with a lot more agency to live a life that is not only happy, but has the ability to influence the world around it. And so, I'm very grateful for uh, for this work and for for our relationship and everything uh, that you're bringing to the world. And I was as I was driving up here, 
Um, I was thinking about you and how you have been able to manifest um, since we met. And I know that, you know, when you lost your mom and when you had your breakup and when you hit a, your rock bottom. And in some ways, the first little emotion that kind of arose for me was strangely envy. Mm. And, uh, but I qualified it because really, um, as I began to sort of really think about it, it's the projection of your unfulfilled potential onto someone else. That Mm. is often what envy kind of skirts around it. And and then I sort of reframed it really as inspiration. Mm. It's that truly the way that you've been able to manifest, to step into the best version of yourself is creating a, a, an example, a shadow into which people can bask and and find uh, solace and inspiration. So thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Those words are so kind. And I, you know, I appreciate you so much and our friendship. Um, Again, we met in that sort of tricky period of my life and you were always there. Um, And just, you know, as as, as things evolved and, you know, things continue to grow, I'm just, you know, it's that stability of the true self. It really does attract real soul friends where it's just, you know, sometimes we don't talk for a while and I see you and it's like, hey. Yeah, we're we're right (laughs) where we left off on our last conversation. and so natural. Yeah. And we all have our liminal states, you know, Um, there is no terminus to this work. No. It is a process and it is uh, embracing the beauty of the process. There's a wonderful image of, you know, the more that we throw the kindling sort of on the fire of wisdom and the bigger that fire gets, the more it actually uh, illuminates the darkness of the, of the night sky. Well, it's like, you know, the Tao, is it the, the, those that think they know do not know? So I was explaining this book to someone and she's like, oh, so simplistic. Of course, we're the soul. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, like it's one thing to like hear a concept. We know the work of you know, Vedas, the Sankhya Vedic philosophy, this whole union really going back to self-realization is the work of lifetimes, you know, of really embodying it, not just knowing it as a mind thought, but to live it. Hmm. There's the profound in the simple <laughs> yeah well the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. exactly so that this 10, is things <laughs> this is the process of you know it's the allegory of the cave that this it just recurs all the time is that here we are looking at the shadows of what we think life is and you know this inexorable process of the examined life is to turn around and to look more clearly and directly at the light such that we can see these things that are universal and perennially true. Yes. And, you know, we, of course, this is why we write books and we talk to each other and we engage in sangha and satsangs and dialogue and Socratic questioning. And this is the process of being human is sharing energy and information in the name of connection. Mm -hmm. And to support each other on the journey and to deepen our, um, again, going back to self, self self-connection, which then leads to more connection with others. Yes. That is the pathway of better relationships as well. It's viral in the best sense. All right. (laughs) Kimberly Schneider. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kimberly Snyder. Be sure to pick up Kimberly's new book, You Are More Than You Think You Are, Practical Enlightenment for Everyday Life, which will be released on January 25th, 2022. You can follow her on Instagram at underscore Kimberly Snyder and at mysaluna.com. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show. We really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are ads. So if you're really looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that helped make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.